Amen. Thank you, Travis. Well, good morning again. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. That's kind of a mouthful. If you think, I don't know that I can uh, memorize that, that's okay. It's written in big letters on the wall when you come in. One of the ways that we glorify God and continue to glorify God is by turning our attention to his word. So I'd invite you to do that. Turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, as we continue here in our studies. One of the things that we are learning as a church, as a group of Christians, uh, very simply, is to more and more take our cues from God's word. To take our cues on how to live, on how to love from the word of God. And so uh, Mark certainly directs our attention to Jesus. He's the main character, the main actor in the book of Mark, as we have seen in our studies. Mark chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 23 through 28. If you're able to, please stand. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word for us today. You, you may be seated. Join me again in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, teach us now through your word. Lord, we confess that we are hard of hearing, and frequently we simply have hard hearts. So grow us and give us your grace so that we might hear, that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might change. May our time together this morning, Lord, not be a waste and just a bunch of religious activity, but give to us your words, your life, your truth, your hope, your healing, your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Bad things aren't supposed to happen on Sundays, right? Sundays are the Lord's day. Sunday is the Sabbath. Sunday is a day of rest. Sunday is a day of worship where we gather as we're doing here with our brothers and sisters. Bad stuff's not supposed to happen on Sundays. I was driving to church last Sunday morning and I hit the freeway and I-90 and about a mile into that drive, I happened to glance in my rearview mirror and I noticed a police car behind me. And I think it must have followed me probably down the South Hill all the way to the freeway. And what was actually kind of unnerving about this, not just that it was foggy, but there, there was hardly any other cars on the freeway at that time, except for me and this police officer. And so a lot of thoughts began to go through my head at that point. Why are you following me? What did I do wrong? But really, why are you following me? And so immediately I looked down at the speedometer and I, I was actually going the speed limit. 
I glanced in my rearview mirror again, and the police officer is now picking up speed. That distance is, is, is becoming closer. And so more thoughts went through my mind. Did I, did I stop at that stop sign? Or did I just kind of do the rolling California stop? But that's not really, a, you can't get a ticket for that, right? <laughs> did, did, I, did I go through that red light? Did I remember to change the tabs in November? And at this point, I'm several miles down the freeway. Again, there's hardly any cars, and that police cruiser is getting closer and closer, sneaking up to my bumper, and I knew what was going to happen next. I would see the flashing lights. I'd get pulled over. They'd handcuff me. They'd throw me in the back of the car. My face would be smashed up against the glass. Perhaps I've watched one too many movies. But more, I thought, that's not supposed to happen on a Sunday. I'm on my way to church. Bad things like that are not supposed to happen on Sundays. Why, is this, why do police officers even work on Sundays? <laughs> now, that's not the thing you want to say to a police officer if they actually do pull you over for speeding. I am thankful for police and firefighters and doctors and nurses who do work on Sundays to keep us safe. But it does raise a series of questions about the Sabbath. What is it all about? How should we think about Sundays? Does Jesus care what happens on the Sabbath? What happens, what activities should happen on a day like today? Should we actually care or perhaps care more about the Sabbath and, as we think about it, Sundays? That's really the essence of the question that is posed to Jesus here from the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2. Now, once again, the Pharisees are those bright guys. They are experts in the Old Testament law. These are the smartest guys in the room. They're not only experts in the law, they're also experts in determining who's breaking the law. So they were, their question to Jesus is not, you know what, Jesus, we were thinking here. Here's what we think about the Sabbath. Here's what we think about the laws. We had a little conversation here. We're just kind of curious. What do you think about that? That's not what they're saying at all. This is actually the fourth of fifth accusatory questions from the Pharisees that are levied at Jesus here in Mark chapter 2. If, uh, just a, 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 as a reminder, the beginning of Mark chapter 2 starts with Jesus healing a paralyzed man. Jesus not only heals him, but he also pronounces forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees ask, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, Jesus, you can't do that. The second question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, you're wrong. And in our passage last week related to fasting, why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? Everybody else fasts, but, but not them. Who do they think they are? Once again, Jesus, you're, you're wrong. And in our passage this morning, the Pharisees accuse the disciples of Jesus, and by extension, Jesus himself, of breaking the law, of breaking the Sabbath law. Verse 24, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Translation, Jesus, you and your band of followers are rebels. You guys are criminals, 
and you deserve to be treated as such. So the disciples of Jesus are picking grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are picking a fight on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to both of them, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I actually understand God's law completely, and I actually have the right to tell you how to keep God's law. So here's the scene, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, we might read that and think, that doesn't seem like such a big deal, does it? I mean, it doesn't seem like the disciples are committing some, some huge crime here. And the Pharisees, well, they kind of seem like a bunch of guys who were, were causing a huge ruckus over a very small act on one particular day. But we need to understand, for, for the Pharisees, and certainly for the Jewish people, there were two external badges that really mattered to them, that marked them out as true followers of God. Now, Dave last week talked about those merit badges on our sashes that we all are prone to have. The Jewish people had two. The, the top two merit badges were circumcision. So it's, you know, that's, that's kind of easy to tell one way or the other. You either are or you're not. There's no middle ground there. But the second merit badge was keeping the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. And that's a bit trickier. How do you know if you kept your merit badge from one week to the next? How do you know if you, you actually sinned there? How, how do you know if you still have or perhaps you've lost that merit badge on your sash? So for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was hugely important. It ran from sunset Friday to sunset on Saturday. It was, they were commanded by God to set aside this time as holy unto the Lord. The Sabbath really proclaimed that Yahweh is the God of all creation, the God over all time, and it designated the Jewish people, the Israelites, as God's chosen people, his covenant people. They were unique to him. Now, interestingly enough, Islam honors Mecca as a holy place. Islam honors the Koran as a holy book. Hinduism honors the, the Ganges River as a holy place. But neither of them has a comparable day of rest and worship like the Jewish people had as we think about the Sabbath. And so the fourth commandment, which is actually the longest of all the commands, we read about that in Exodus chapter 20, really spells this out. The Jews were to abstain from every kind of work on the Sabbath because God himself rested uh, from his work of creation on the seventh day. Now, so far, so good. I've really not said anything controversial. Here's where the problem comes. The Pharisees, in their zeal to protect the Sabbath, in their zeal to guard it, in their zeal to make sure that they didn't violate it and nobody around them violated the Sabbath, they came up with an elaborate system of rules and traditions to make sure that they would protect the Sabbath. Because here's what's at stake. To violate the Sabbath or to abandon the Sabbath in some way, at least in the Pharisees' mind, was to abandon God altogether, was to turn their back on the God of the covenant. So again, the stakes are incredibly high here in this conversation. So the Pharisees adopted all kinds of rules. Their general rule was simply this. 
do no work that is not absolutely necessary. Do no work on the Sabbath that is not absolutely necessary. Now, if I were to say to you this morning, do no work on the Sabbath on Sundays that is not absolutely necessary, what do you think happens? We'd have 200 different ideas of what do no, what is work? What constitutes work? What is absolutely necessary? And I might look at you and say, well, wait a minute. I don't think that's necessary, but you're doing that. And you might look at me and say, that's definitely not necessary, so why are you doing that? I mean, it's left open to a whole lot of interpretation, isn't it? Well, the Pharisees thought of that. And so in all their wisdom, they came up with a plan to say, okay, there's, there really are all kinds of ways you can interpret that, so what do we need to do? We need more rules. We need rules upon rules. And so that's what they did. They came up with all kinds of more rules to really guard the Sabbath. I mean, what's better than one rule? A million rules. No wonder these guys didn't smile much. Now, I referenced the Mishnah a week ago that dates back to about 200 AD. It is a collection of authoritative writings for the Jews. Here's what's really fascinating. In the Mishnah, so we're talking a long time ago, right? It delineates 39 different broad categories of labor that is forbidden on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat. And each of these 39 broad categories of labor has dozens of derivative laws and, and activities that are also forbidden. So it gets complicated really fast. I mean, you thought we had rules here at GCF. You have 39 broad categories of things that are forbidden, and then each of those 39 have all kinds of subsequent rules as well. So we're talking hundreds of things that are forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, because I love you, I'm only going to list off all the 39 things, the activities that are forbidden on the Sabbath. You ready? Here we go. Sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering and binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, cleaning. I know some of you now are clapping your hands. Yep. Shearing wool, combing, dyeing, not like, but like the garment dyeing, coloring. Although you don't want to do either one of them on the Sabbath, let's just be honest. Stretching the threads, making loops, weaving threads, separating the threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, hide, smoothing, ruling lines, I'm not sure what that is, cutting, writing, erasing, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, striking the final hammer blow, and carrying, which was their version of walking. Other than that, enjoy your Sunday. <laughs> In verse 23, the disciples are plucking heads of grain, which was considered reaping. They're also guilty of walking, carrying. So, so the Pharisees actually have two things against the disciples. You're, doing, you're breaking the law in two ways. You're reaping and you're carrying. Well, what's interesting is Deuteronomy 23, 25 actually made a provision for reaping. It says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain, with your hand. So in the Old Testament law, it, it cared about your neighbor. So there was a provision there which said, as we would say, if you're walking through your, you know, your neighbor's yard, it's okay to eat their grapes or their fruit or their pumpkin or whatever, in this case, grain. That, that wasn't forbidden. So the disciples, like, they're scoring points here. Point for the disciples. 
Exodus 34, 21 says, you are to labor uh, for or six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. Well, reaping was considered harvesting. Point for the Pharisees. They thought it would be better for you to go hungry, potentially even die, than to break the rules. So do you see what we have here? The disciples are taking a nice, leisurely Sabbath walk through the grain fields, snacking as they go along. The Pharisees cry foul. Who's right? Here comes Jesus, who obeys the Torah. He obeys the Old Testament law. But it doesn't seem like Jesus cares too much about their Sabbath laws. More to the point, it doesn't seem that Jesus cares too much about the Pharisees' interpretation of those Sabbath laws. Here's his response, verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? All those, he and those with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. The Pharisees are picking a fight with Jesus. And Jesus tells them a story, a very old story from about a thousand years ago. Now we'll get to that and why in just a minute. But church, what I really want you to notice here is, well, I want you to notice Jesus. I want you to notice just in this interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus is very composed. He's calm. Now, next week, we'll read how Jesus gets angry. So if you're looking to find out more about the angry Jesus, you'll have to come back next week. But the Pharisees here have been poking him and provoking him and needling him and jabbing at him for a long time now. They're ready for a fight, but Jesus here engages them on, on a really a completely different level. You know when someone is picking a fight with you, at least a verbal sparring match, don't you? Oftentimes, it's the people that we talk to the most. It's a spouse, children, family members, people we see the most, colleague at work. They, they just have a way of knowing how to push your buttons. And then they do push your buttons. And you know what happens in your own heart, don't you? When your buttons start to be pushed, something inside, you, you start getting riled up a little bit. And even though you never went to law school and have no desire, you become your own defense attorney because you're defending your turf. And you have, you're not even listening at this point, right? Because you, you know exactly what you want to say. You have three points and they need to listen. And then we press repeat. Here's Jesus. Pharisees have been jabbing at him. And he doesn't lose it. He's composed. He never sins against these Pharisees. He had plenty of opportunity had he chosen to do so, but he didn't. Why? Well, his mission was not to win a quick argument by pushing their buttons harder. No, that's not why Jesus came. His mission was to save those same people who are pushing his buttons from their sins. The Pharisees want to pick a fight. They're in his face. And Jesus knows he's going to die for those same people. 
on the cross to give them life. To his response then, Jesus speaks of a very interesting account in the life of King David. This is actually from 1 Samuel 21. I think we, we read this and we think, what, where is Jesus going with that? It's almost like, well, follow me on a journey. But, but here's what he's saying. David, in, in 1 Samuel 21, the context there, David is fleeing from, an, from a tyrant, King Saul. He's on the run, he and his men, fleeing from his life and for his life. And so David does perhaps what you and I would do when you're in trouble, where should you go? Well, he goes to church. It's a good place to go if you're in trouble. And David and his men, they're hungry, so they ask the high priest for food. And in this case, the only food available was called the bread of the presence. It was consecrated bread. It was bread that was set apart under the Old Testament law. It was eaten only by the priests, and it was changed out every Sabbath. But here come David and his men. They're hungry. They're fearing for your life. When you're on the run, fearing from an evil tyrant, evidently you don't, you don't really think about where your next meal's coming from. You don't have supper plans. And so they're hungry, and what do they do? Well, they eat the bread. In eating the bread, well, they ate bread that you're not supposed to eat. They broke the law. Now, the point of Jesus here is actually, it's actually pretty simple. It's not normal it's not even lawful for David and his men to eat that consecrated bread, but it's even more the case that God did not want David and his men to starve to death. God was primarily concerned with meeting that immediate need of his servant David, the, the anointed king of Israel. And, and nowhere in the Bible do we read then that David and his men sinned against God or against the high priest by eating this consecrated bread. So when Jesus, in this text here, is talking to the Pharisees, when he sort of takes a trip down memory lane here, he's saying, I have as much authority as Abathar the high priest to determine what is good for my disciples. His word is authoritative. And notice that, that Jesus doesn't appeal to other rabbis. He doesn't appeal to other uh, you know, the Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Shammai, they were really important rabbis in the first century. They had large followings. He doesn't appeal to them and say, well, like Rabbi Hillel. No, Jesus is his own authority. He speaks with the authority of God. He has the right to determine what is and what is not a violation on the Sabbath. So if you've been keeping score this morning, well, the disciples scored, but the Pharisees also scored, but here's Jesus now with the equivalent of a slam dunk at the buzzer. Verse 27. Here's the principle. Here's the point that he has been driving at. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's two things I want us to note here. Number one, Sundays are made for man not man, for Sundays. So the vision of Jesus here for, for the Sabbath, for Sundays, is, is liberating. It's not enslaving. I mean, Jesus is like a breath of fresh gospel air in an otherwise, you know, stale boy's locker room. The Pharisees here, well, they acted like they were, they were part of a, a ruling committee at the local country club who had a really, really nice golf course and they were in charge of it. 
Their golf course was pristine. The fairways were perfect. It was immaculate. There wasn't a blade of grass out of place. And so the the committee decides, you know what, in order to preserve this pristine golf course, uh, we can't have all those divots in the fairway, so let's come up with a rule. And so their new rule at their golf course was to say, from now on, all the golfers would need to play their shots from the rough, from the weeds, from the tall grass. That way, we can keep our golf course looking pristine, untouched, beautiful, immaculate. Now, would any of you golfers actually be excited to play on that course? You're not really playing golf anymore, are you? I'm very familiar with not seeing any of the fairways when I play golf, so it doesn't really bother me. But you understand the point. Golf courses, like the Sabbath, are meant to be enjoyed, not preserved. And so contrary here to what the Pharisees taught with their 39 broad categories of things that you cannot do, must not do, are forbidden to do, and all of the hundreds of laws that go with it, the Sabbath was made to bless you and me. It was made to bless men and women. It was made for our enjoyment, to, to meet our needs, not to crush us under some heavy burden of rule-keeping. The Sabbath, Sundays, brothers and sisters, was designed by God to be a day of rest, a day of renewal for both the body and the soul. Sundays are God's provision for people like us. Weak, needy, fearful, anxious, spiritually hungry people who know that we need spiritual food or else we may not make it another week. Sundays are made for man, not man for Sundays. So we need to think carefully. We need to perhaps reconsider carefully our relationship with the Sabbath, with Sundays. On Sundays, really, the the first question is not, what can't we do today? What are all the things that are forbidden, or that my parents are saying are forbidden, on the Sabbath? No, really, the question is, how does God want to give us grace today? How does God want to satisfy our souls today? God made Sundays so that you can have a day off from the normal routines of work and of toil and of struggle and labor. And especially in our day, in our day of busyness and hectic performance-driven lives, it's really, really easy to forget this principle. In fact, it's just really, really easy to ignore this. I was talking to an acquaintance, this is a couple years ago, and just explaining kind of what at least Sunday morning looks like. And he just looked at me and said, what a waste. He's like, that's the most productive part of my day. If I didn't have Sunday mornings, I, I don't know, he, he, he's like, I don't know what I would do. And so more and more, the fact, like I just want to encourage you all, thanks for being here. But the fact that you're here, just, just gathering on a Sunday morning like this is becoming weirder in our culture. Because people don't have a category for that. Why would you spend a couple hours on a Sunday morning reading and thinking and praying and listening to God's word? What a waste, some would say. We need to fight spiritually 
for a Sabbath, for a day off from our normal work and toils and labors, because it's not going to happen magically. And what you'll find is that one week we'll just run into the next, and one Sunday we'll run into the next, and before long you're 80 years old. Some of us may need to reconsider our relationship with Sundays, how we think about what should happen on Sundays. What are those activities that are most important? How are we going to order up our Sundays? Years ago when I was in university, I had a roommate, Dave, really great guy. Uh, both of us, uh, we went to church uh, pretty regularly. But I think this was our junior year. We both realized that while we were at church, and this is full disclosure here, we were primarily thinking of two things, and it wasn't the sermon. We were thinking about lunch, because Sunday was the best meal of the week in the cafeteria. It was like Thanksgiving, turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, bacon. <laughs> and the second thing we were thinking about was all the work that we had to do, the papers we had to write, the, the, the pages of books that we needed to read, all the stuff that we didn't, well, we didn't get done. And that wasn't a good strategy for our souls or for our GPAs. But I remember Dave and I just thinking through a little bit and just even asking long enough just to think, you know what, is, how can we do this differently? So that Sunday actually could be much more a day of rest, perhaps, a day of worship, because right now it's not really working. And so we, I mean, we didn't get all the way there, but we did give it the college try. On a very practical note, it meant that we needed to actually do homework on Friday and Saturday night, which was a huge paradigm shift for us. That's called higher education. You pay a lot of money for insights like that. <laughs> it's amazing. You got to do stuff on Friday and Saturday in order to free up Sunday. Like I said, we didn't get there all the way, probably a solid B for effort. But perhaps some of you this morning are, are in the habit on Sundays of maybe studying, organizing closets, running errands, paying bills. And the question to consider is, is, is Sunday any different than really Monday through Saturday? I, I hope it is. Sunday is meant to be a day of rest, spiritual rest, physical rest. And if it's not, brothers and sisters, you're actually robbing yourself and your soul of much-needed grace, of really God's provision for you. Because remember, we are, we are human beings. We are not human doings. We need to, we are finite men and women. So we need to stop and ask the question, what what does God want to give me today on the Sabbath? How does he want to satisfy my soul today? How can I avail myself of the spiritual food that he delights to give me, that he's generous to give to me? Because your heavenly father gives good gifts to his children. And one of those, among the many blessings, the good gifts he gives, is, is a Sabbath, is Sunday. It's a day of rest and worship. Your Heavenly Father loves you. He knows what you need better than you know. And so the, the Sundays are, are really meant to be a day of liberation, a day of rest, resting from our daily struggles of physical labor, even pain. So again, the question is, what, what is how does God want to give me much needed grace today? It's not, 
do I have to go to church? Again, because wasn't I just there last week? But I get to go to church. I, I get to worship God. I get to be with God's people. I get to pray for a brother or sister. I get to be prayed for. I get to fellowship. I get to have my soul satisfied with God's goodness. Sundays are made for man, not man for Sundays. That's the first thing Jesus says. Notice the second thing again. It's in verse 28. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus there is, well, he's kind of sticking it to the Pharisees, to be blunt. What he's saying is you and your 39 rules and all of your uh, hundreds of related laws, that's not Lord. And you're not Lord over the Sabbath. I am, so I get to determine what should or should not occur on the Sabbath. That, brothers and sisters, that's authority. That's the kind of authority that no one else has. That's the authority of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 16, Therefore do not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These, these things are a shadow of what is to come, the, but the substance belongs to the Messiah. In other words, Paul's saying that Jesus is greater than the law because he is in fact the living law. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath in one day because the Sabbath was only a type. It was a shadow. It was a pattern of Jesus and his rest. Jesus intends his laws to liberate his people, to liberate us. And ultimately, it points to one day when if you belong by faith in Christ, then you will you will enter his rest for all eternity as you enter the presence of Christ. So Jesus, as the Son of Man, fully God, fully man, Jesus has the very authority of God to tell us how to live. Yes, on the Sabbath, but every day. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, yes, but he's also Lord of every day. And so every day, Jesus has the authority, the authority of God to tell us as his disciples how to live. Now, we tend to have a, probably what could be classified as a love-hate relationship with authority. For most of us, we probably love it when we are the authority. When we're in charge, we get to call the shots and we probably dislike it, some of us immensely, if we don't get to call the shots and we're not in authority and people are always telling us what to do. But every one of us has many authorities in life. Some are God-given authorities due to their position over us, parents and pastors and teachers and employers. But other people or other things also have authority. And sometimes they can have a lot of authority and exert great influence over us, whether positively or negatively, good or bad. Your circle of friends might influence how you think. You may find it hard to, to go against them, even if you know that there's a certain attitude or action that is wrong. So what's currently trending or what's popular, or what's being bantered around on social media, maybe it's your favorite sports team or your entertainment choices, all those things can affect our mood, can affect our emotions, can affect our choices. So there's people and there's a whole bunch, if we really think about it, different things that can actually have authority. 
in our lives. Perhaps you're here this morning and the truth is you, you largely function as your own authority. You are calling the shots, kind of making it up as you go along. That's actually not all that uncommon for even professing Christians to sort of adopt a I'm going to choose my own spiritual adventure approach to life and to living. Brothers and sisters, I don't know that there is anything more worrisome or just flat out exhausting and wearisome than being your own authority. Than trying to figure out on your own how to live. Jesus offers something far better. He actually offers himself. He comes to you and he says, I'm the king, the true king that you're searching for. So your life, and this is what's so ironic, we live in a day and age where that's pretty much the, the message that we hear is you're in charge, you create your own life, you create your own destiny. Nobody tells you the fine print. If you do that, you're headed for disaster. You're, you're just headed for disaster right off the cliff. We're not meant, we're not created by God to do life on our own terms. We're created by God for him to say, I need to surrender my will to you and I need to bend my knee to you because you're the true king. You died on the cross to save me from my sins. You're the one that's given me life. You're the one that gives me hope. Because there's no hope in trying to run your own life. Take it from Adam and Eve. Take it from all of us. We're all prone to that. Jesus has an authority unlike any parent or any teacher or any coach or any police officer who may be following you on the freeway. Jesus never abuses his authority. He never wields it foolishly or improperly. But he has the very authority of God to, to tell us how to live. And that's what the Pharisees couldn't get or they just did not want to get. Because they were their own authority. They wanted to pick a fight with Jesus here on the Sabbath. But Jesus has come to save their souls from hell. And so what they couldn't see was how this Jesus, son of man, son of God, would use his God-given authority in God-ordained ways for God-pleasing purposes and mission, redeeming sinners from their sin. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Which really what he means there is if you're looking for rest, ultimately, if you're looking for that shalom, that rest, that peace in your soul, you're never going to find it until you turn to Christ. You're never going to find it until you turn to Christ. So where, where might you this morning be picking your own fight with Jesus? Truth is, we, we all can easily do that. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out who this Jesus is and the authority that he might have, if you've never turned from your sins and repented, then you are, as the Bible says, you're actually at war with Jesus. You are fighting him. 
And you need to know that Jesus is not going to back down. And when I say he's not going to back down, he's, he's not going to stop pursuing you because he loves you. Because he has compassion for you. Because he knows you're headed right off the cliff. And he's there to rescue you. Bend the knee to him. Find rest for your soul. And even as Christians, perhaps you've been a Christian for many years, the truth is, there are parts of our lives where we can still exercise our own authority instead of joyfully submitting to his. You probably already know what those areas in your life might be. I got mine own as well. Those are the areas where there still needs to be growth, there needs to be grace. And the good news there is that even, hear what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters, even as a Christian, when you subtly or not so subtly pick a fight with Jesus, what is his response? He doesn't turn away. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't move on to other people, better people. He loves you. And he simply says, turn to me. It doesn't have to be that way. Repent of your sins, trust me, and follow me. And that's the call for all of us. There's really only one way to find rest. A Sabbath, Sunday rest for your soul. And that is to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm in need of rest, and I know my brothers and sisters here are as well. Perhaps, Lord, we're not sure exactly what that looks like. Perhaps we're a little bit fearful of what godly change might entail. Perhaps, Lord, we, we fear maybe what family members or those around us might say if, if perhaps we, we start to live differently. God, have mercy, have grace upon us all. We come to you in need, but we know that you hear our prayers. We know that you will respond to us, and we know, Lord, that you'll never turn away the humble heart, the man or woman who cries out to you for help, for wisdom, for hope. Thank you for your great faithfulness to us. Thank you that you will be faithful to us this day and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there are many things that we can do on the Sabbath, but there's none that are actually more important than rejoicing in our great salvation that God has won for us by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came, that is, into the world, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus came into the world to give life, that is, eternal life, to all those who would believe in him. And the way that Jesus would do that is by giving up his own life on the cross for sinners like us who we, we actually deserve to die. We actually deserved his punishment. 
but through his atoning death, people like us find life. And in finding life, not just for eternity, but while we live on this earth, we do find rest for our souls. So communion is really a tangible reminder of, of both our great spiritual need and how God's gracious provision of Christ has met that great need. So this is a meal for the redeemed people of God. If that does not describe you, I'm really glad that you're here. We'd love to speak with you more about who this Jesus is and how you can find rest for your souls. Please refrain from receiving communion. In just a minute, I'll invite you forward. We have both wine and grape juice uh, up here. Uh, you can come, take the elements, and then return to your chair. I'm going to have the center aisle go first this Sunday. Hold on to your hats. I know. Uh, and even more than that, because I know you can handle it, uh, center aisle, you, you have two options here. So you can choose go that way or that way. Once the center aisle is done, then the aisles can come forward. With that, uh, let me pray, and uh, I'm going to just invite us just to spend uh, just a, a brief time in confession of sin. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I want to just give us a moment to examine our lives, examine our hearts before the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, hear our prayers of silent prayers of confession of sins. Our Lord, we know that if we confess our sins, that indeed you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the blood of Christ that is sufficient for every one of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you for the pardon that is granted through Christ. Thank you for his perfect righteousness. Thank you that we can be robed in his perfect, pure righteousness as if it were our own by faith in Christ. Lord, you have done truly the impossible. 
I pray that even this day and this week, I pray that even right now, that you would increase our faith in you, help us to trust you way more than we do, and in all things to look to you for our very lives. Thank you for meeting the greatest need for life and need for a Savior. We love to confess, God, that you are our God and we are your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.